Hello, this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about globalisation and the effects it has had on Ireland and other countries around the world over the last 50 years or so. In each programme we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country or countries to get their unique perspective on globalisation as it has affected them, where they live and its relationship with the wider world. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both for me and from my interviewees from around the world. Today we will be talking to the CEO of an Irish-owned company that manufactures high-quality engineered products that are exported all over the world from their manufacturing base in Monaghan. The person in question is Martin McVicker, CEO of CombiLift, a company that, while it is just 21 years old, has already reached a turnover in the hundreds of millions of euros and exports its products consisting of multi-directional articulated forklift trucks, pedestrian stackers and straddle carriers for use in factories, warehouses and airports to over 85 countries around the world. And the company still sees huge potential to grow in terms of products, markets and sales in the future. I'm delighted to have Martin join us on the line to talk about his experiences and reflections on doing business internationally from Ireland and to get his perspective on the future for his business and for Ireland in this globalised world. Welcome, Martin, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thanks for inviting me along, Patrick. It's a pleasure, Martin. Uh, just to kick things off, Martin, maybe we start with um, your career start and progression. So how did you come to be uh, the CEO of a multi-million euro exporting company? Well, where my career originally started off, uh, when I was at secondary school, I had no interest in going to university. So I actually left school at the age of 17 and I took up a summer job in Moffat Engineering an engineering company in Monaghan manufacturing the Moffat truck-mounted forklift. And that summer job at the age of 17 actually became a nine-and-a-half-year career there. And it was only until the Moffat engineering business was sold in September 1997, and that was the catalyst for me to do something on my own. I always had an interest to, to get involved in a business on my own, but while I was working in the Moffat business, it was a private company, and I felt being recognized for the effort I was putting in. Mm-hmm. But for me, is I just felt the minute Moffat Engineering became a public company, that I, would, I felt that I would become a number in the organization, and that was the catalyst where now I really want to do something on my own. And that, that was in... So if you want to call it, the catalyst happened in September 1997. Yeah, 1997. And in March 1998, myself and my business partner, Robert Moffat, we actually set up CombiLift together then. And what were the first uh, products or product uh, in, those, in those times? We, we tried to focus on a niche market because forklift trucks was all I knew. And I was age 26 at the time. Myself and my business partner, Robert, always felt... If we try to make conventional forklift trucks, there's so much competition out there. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to make us stand out from the crowd? So the market we originally focused on was developing the CombiLift multi-directional forklift truck. And what it is, is a forklift truck can drive forward and back like a conventional forklift, mm-hmm. but it can also travel left and right. So it's ideal for handling long products. If you want to summarize, the niche market we focused on was customers handling long product. And that was really our differentiator uh, day one. And very much that was our core for the first three or four years of our business. Mm -hmm. And then by long loads, we mean things like lengths of timber and pipes as opposed to, say, things that are on pallets, right? Exactly. So anything that's not palletized, we would call long or awkward loads, anything that doesn't fit on a conventional pallet. And that could be steel, 
timber, plastic, aluminum, prefabricated houses, anything that's unusual in size and shape that doesn't fit on a uniform uh, conventional pallet pattern. Okay, and then and then later in time you developed uh, the articulated forklift truck, which does handle um, palletized loads, but in a kind of a space-saving format and very narrow aisles. When when did that product range come into being? Um, we we actually we established Islemaster as a separate brand and that has been on the market now for close on 18 years and the reason we set it up as a separate brand because we wanted to keep the CombiLift brand focused on the combination forklift and if you really think where the name CombiLift came from it's a combination forklift that can go forward back left and right mm-hmm. and we established a separate brand the Islemaster for the articulated forklift that's designed primarily for handling pallets in small aisles. So that product's been on the market now 18 years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, where the idea originally came from, myself and my business partner, Robert, we were we were demonstrating a CombiLift multi-directional forklift truck with B&Q in the UK back about 18, 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they had a great interest in it, but they had, they had more of an interest in a product for handling pallets in small aisles in a DIY store. And they happened to have a discussion where they said, we've been looking for our small articulated forklift that would actually run on LP gas at the time. And I remember as, myself... As, as Robert, opposed to electric, as, which as would have been... As opposed to electric, yeah. correct. Okay. And on my way back, on our way back on the flight, we, we said to ourselves, we can definitely do this. So it was very much, it was a spore of a moment uh, demonstrating <laughs> our existing product with B&Q planted the seed that there is a market for, we would call it an internal combustion articulated truck. Mm-hmm. And that's where we started off with Ailmaster. But then we progressed a few years later by introducing the electric model, which which is our, our highest volume in the Ailmaster range today. And in those early days in the, in the late 1990s, what were the major, in a business sense, say, more than a product sense, what were the major challenges and obstacles that you had to overcome in those early days? Well, I think it's like most entrepreneurs, you, you don't, it, and I know it sounds funny, but you don't really remember the challenges because <laughs> they did not seem major barriers. You know, you, you yeah. just put the head down and you got on with it. Like, we're in County Monaghan, so, you know, when we talk about Brexit on the horizon at the moment, when we were involved in setting up CombiLift, we actually set up CombiLift just the same year or just prior to the Good, uh, Good Friday Agreement. That's right, yeah. Um, so I mean, you don't really think of obstacles when when you put your mind to it. You just keep focused at it. But I suppose if I was summarising, I think setting up any business, particularly we were manufacturing physical product, and our raw material components are quite a big cost in the manufacturing process. Getting any of our suppliers to give us credit in them early stages was course, very yeah. difficult. Yeah, because you had no track record. We'd, no, now we had a bit of a plus because myself and Robert, we were involved in the Moffat business, so we knew a number of suppliers. But I can say, and this probably has still held today, the suppliers that were willing to give us some credit in them early stages, we have still honoured them by giving them business as we have continued to grow the company. So it just shows yeah. if a supplier supports a start-up in the early stage, it makes it a lot easier to, to get business there in the future. Okay, so that was that was one resource, I guess, uh, your reputation from the previous business and suppliers who knew you. What, what other resources do you think were important that you guys had that ensured your, your, your Getting success? Getting off the ground. Yeah. Um, I, I think the other big plus for me personally, while I worked in Moffat Engineering, in them later years, I was engineering manager or R&D manager heading up a team of 35 on the product design side. 
But during them years in Moffat Engineering, I spent a lot of time traveling overseas to international markets. So I'd be visiting companies like Home Depot in the United States, seeing how we could improve the Moffat product for their application. Or I remember even visiting Smurfit in Mexico, looking at how we develop a paper clamp for handling their, their paper products. And that international travel before I was involved in setting up CombiLift really opened up my vision as to the potential amount of opportunity there is out on a global global mm-hmm. stage, really. I think I may have run into you in uh, in Chicago in 2003 at a... At was a, it Promat? Yeah. <laughs> I think we said hello to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's... I'll tell you what, you, you have some memory going back to 2003, and <laughs> it's interesting you should mention about trade shows because that has been one of Combilif's root of successes... We exhibit our products at many trade shows worldwide, and that even was really from when we started the business. Mm -hmm. And if I take just last year, in 2018, there was Isle Masters and Comedy Products exhibited at more than 90 trade shows worldwide. Mm. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, how how do you go from uh, a startup manufacturing an engineered product in County Monaghan to exporting regularly to 85 countries? Um, you know what? A lot of it, 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 it is a stepping stone. And what I have found has been the most cost-effective for us is following our customers. Because I remember the first combi lift we, we sold into Dubai was for a German company called Shuko. And Shuko make aluminium or aluminum profile for windows and doors. They're very large in that sector. Mm-hmm. They were using our product in, in Germany and in Estonia and Latvia. And they said to me, you know what, we'd like a combiler for our Dubai distribution center. So my first trip to Dubai wasn't to find a, a user, but was to find a service partner. Yeah, okay. Similarly, our first business in India was an Australian company called Butler Blue Scope Steel. They were setting up a, a fabrication site in Pune, just south of Bombay. They ordered four combiler multi-directional trucks. So that was our first mark in India. So... We very much just focus on on following our customers because if you can follow your customers, it's a very cost-effective way of entering a new market at that early stage. So, and then working internationally in that way, you know, you come across these cultural and language and technical barriers and different um, business cultures and legal systems and so on. How did you how do you deal with those on a, on an ongoing basis? It's um, we like probably many. You know, we were very export focused from day one, yeah. and in fact, uh, in year one, we would call it we manufactured eighteen combilift multi-directional trucks. So that was in nineteen ninety eight. We made eighteen vehicles. Seventeen of the eighteen of them were exported. Okay, yeah. and. Our first sales for export were in Norway, Belgium, France, and we only sold one in Ireland that year. And would we probably, in terms of that export focus, we did probably take the lazy option in that we only appointed dealers or distributors that spoke English. So even though when we were doing business in Belgium, as we all know, it's an advantage if you can speak the local language. Mm -hmm. But we picked a distributor that could communicate with us at the plant in English. Same in France. Our French dealer today, from that time back, 21 years ago, speaks English with the plant. So it meant we didn't have to invest heavily in recruiting people with competency in language back here in our Monaghan facility. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that probably has scaled our business, but it's got us off to a good start in um, language markets that, that are a challenge for many Irish company. Yeah, sure. And I know that you travel personally quite a bit. 
Um, do you have any funny cultural stories or anecdotes of you know these kind of mishaps that sometimes happen when you're when you're on your travels? I don't know how long you've got in this interview, <laughs> but but you know what? Sometimes I often mishaps and misadventures. Sometimes I've often found they always lead lead to opportunities. Yeah. And uh, I can give you a funny one is that I remember being in Vancouver, meeting their distributor dealer there called Levitt Machinery mm-hmm. on a Friday. And I was traveling to the U.S. over the weekend, but I had nothing really planned on the Saturday. And I remember earlier that year, we exhibited our combi lift trucks at Ligna, which is the international wood trade show in Hanover in Germany. Mm-hmm. And we had an inquiry from Vancouver Island from a, a wood processor there, a company called New Caledonian um, Timber Products. And I decided on the Friday evening, no plan, I'd rent a car and I'd drive out to Vancouver Island just to see, was that company worth following up with? Like something to do on a Saturday. And I remember without any appointment meeting, the owner and his wife, and they ordered a combi lift multi-directional truck for me on a Saturday at four o'clock. And they didn't even know I was coming, no appointment. And <laughs> So there is several scenarios yeah. like that where misadventure sometimes leads to opportunity. And yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. The question of, you, you mentioned it there, you know, the challenge of some markets, particularly for Irish companies, where we've tended to focus on English-speaking um, markets, and maybe there's a, there's a fear of, of failure and so on. Do you think the attitude to entrepreneurship and failure has changed in Ireland over, say, the last 20, 30 years? It, it's difficult for me to give you a clear answer because I'm, like most entrepreneurs, we don't think of failure anyway. Yeah. Uh, but from doing business in the U.S., you know there's a culture out there. Nobody is, is concerned about failure. You know, it's, it's a learning process. But in Ireland, I'm definitely, people are more open to it, but they definitely wouldn't be as open as they would be in markets like the U.S. to failure yeah. even today, even though it may have improved. or Well, not me. I, I guess it has improved. But I think most entrepreneurs, we don't think of failure. We're always thinking that we're going to solve whatever yeah. obstacle yeah. we come across and Keep your eye on the goal, in essence. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Irish entrepreneurship, I guess, is alive and well and has come back strong since the recession. Where do you see the big opportunities for Irish exporting businesses, both, say, in terms of, of products and, and markets? Well, I think the one thing, when you're, when you're from a small island like Ireland, if you can focus on, on niche products or services that have a unique proposition, there's a market everywhere around the world Mm-hmm. Uh, for companies that are a bit more established, I see the real opportunity now is in, if you want to call it, the BRIC countries. And I know the word BRIC countries has appeared about 10 years ago, but personally I felt from trying to do business in Brazil and India and China about 10 years ago, we were a bit early, but there is major opportunity in them BRIC markets today. Mm-hmm. In so fact, I was in India. Brazil, Russia, to, India, China, maybe South Africa And sometimes. South Africa, yeah. exactly. All yeah. them BRICs, as you say, yeah. yeah. And like I even, if you take trips this year, like I was in India in January, I was in I was in uh, China in, in March this year, I was in Brazil just in October. So them markets are really on our radar, and there's real opportunity there because them developing countries, there there's so much construction still taking place, so much warehousing distribution, and all them. When your physical products like that being handled, it creates service opportunities as well. I get the impression as well that some of us in the developed world have maybe a mistaken idea of some of those countries. And, and when you go to them, 
Um, they're far more sophisticated and and developed than many of us would think. So we shouldn't be overlooking them. Would you would you concur with that? I definitely would. You know, uh, it is amazing. Like you know, sometimes you might think of India as as you know, it is a very much a developing country. But when you visit some of the companies there, they are very sophisticated. So them countries are very progressive in their own right. Mm-hmm. They're probably not as export-focused as maybe Irish companies. And the reason is they don't need to be as Irish as export-focused because there's so much of a domestic market there anyway course, for them. Yeah. We can't say every company is developed, but within them developing countries, there's so many companies there that have built up such a scale within their own domestic market and starting to export, so there's there's real opportunity. I would say right across all them developing markets as such. Yeah, and we've seen our own economy now coming back very strong since about 2014, and we've got to a point now where things are tightening up again, so our labour market is tightening. And I'm, I'm beginning to wonder, what will this mean for us over the next five years or so? What do you, what do you think? Are we going to see more automation, more robotics and AI, more overseas recruitment? What what do you think? Yeah, and, 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 and I think... That challenge hasn't just appeared this year. You know, in the last four or five years, you know, the labour market has been tightening in Ireland anyway. Mm -hmm. And I know for Combulif, our business has more than doubled here in the last five years. And we realised about four or five years ago, it's going to become more of a challenge for us to find skilled people in the vicinity as we want to grow our business. So we teamed up just over four years ago with the local Monaghan Institute and we developed our own internal traineeship program. And annually over the last four years, we've put 20 individuals through a traineeship program per year. Mm -hmm. It's a one-year program where the individual spends about 60% of the time in the classroom and another 40% on our shop floor. But the course content was very much developed around our needs. And it was the first industry-led traineeship that was run in Ireland as such. So we were one of the pioneers to develop a company-led traineeship. And from them 80 individuals that have completed, we've recruited 70 people on a full-time employment in CombiLift that have gone through that traineeship program. And with that success of that, it has focused us to look more nationally through the Apprenticeship Council to set up what's called the OEM Apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And CombiLift, along with 22 other manufacturers across Ireland, Companies like McHale Engineering, Dairy Master and Kerry, Denison Trailers, just to name a few. We've actually developed an apprenticeship geared for individuals that we believe is going to be needed in the manufacturing sector over the next five to ten years. And what's really unique within this apprenticeship, we call it the OEM apprenticeship, which is for original equipment manufacturers. But the content is very based around mechatronics, where you have both electronics and mechanics combined. Because it doesn't matter what physical product you're making today, there's electronics involved in it. And we could not find an existing course out there or an apprenticeship that could offer the course content that is relevant to future needs you know, you can get PL, you can get courses that can teach individuals. You know, if you take an electrician, what you would have learned to be an, el- an electrician maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. that's not totally relevant to be an electrician today. So an industry-led apprenticeship, I think, is a great model to offer in a course that's relevant for future proof and what, what's needed. It's an excellent uh, initiative. It's really kind of enlightened self-interest um, on your part and, and the other manufacturers. Where, where, where is the classroom element of that done? This, this apprenticeship was officially launched in January 2019. The classroom is it's in Monaghan Institute, 
But we have students coming from different parts of the country, mm-hmm. going to Monon Institute for the classroom, and then the practical side, they go back to the companies that are employing them through the apprenticeship. But next year, we're very confident it's going to also be run in Limerick Clare ETB. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be two centres in Ireland, one in Limerick Clare and one in Monaghan Cav and ETB here in Monaghan, and hopefully more in the future as mm-hmm. well. And then thinking of uh, automation, robotics and uh, artificial intelligence, maybe not so much in the in the factory floor, but say in the application end of your, your products out in the warehouses and factories, um, you know, you see these horror stories about it being kind of a threat, it brings a threat of mass unemployment. I wonder, is it is it that or is it maybe a solution to tightening labour markets and demographic challenges that we have all around the world? What's your what's your own view on it? I personally think that automation robotics is not going to lead to mass unemployment because if you look at any of the automation equipment that's been on the market today and in the future, it needs so much involvement of skilled people both planning it, manufacturing it, implementing it, and then supporting it. Because if you take a fully automated system, the day you put it in, there's still service and maintenance. And then if you take in terms of the software, the optimization that's going to be required with that automation to suit client needs. So there's so many career opportunities within automation. And I'd be very confident, if you take a company like CombiLift, we've just put together an automation team as of, May this year, and we've we've recruited an, a PhD student from Limerick Clare to head up this automation department. And within our automation vision, I'm pretty confident that if you even see CombiLift in five years' time, we're going to have additional resources building automated CombiLift forklift trucks here. But it doesn't mean that our plant's going to be automated. It's still going to be very manually orientated, building the automated equipment that other clients are going to be introducing into their logistics warehouses, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, there is definitely a number of automation projects out there in greenfield sites. Like, So if you take the like of the Amazon of this world, mm-hmm. they have greenfield automation where they just plan it from ground up. But I think there's major opportunities for companies like CombiLift and many other SMEs in Ireland to, to support companies automating their existing infrastructures and I'm a strong believer with the products we have to offer. Many companies can gain a lot of value by optimizing what they're doing today before they spend money on automation. Because I think Hmm. the worst thing a company can do is spend money on automating a poor operational infrastructure. And so within that field, there's definitely a lot of opportunities for both small and large companies. And I, I think... It's not going to assist the labour market, or when I mean by that, it's not going to mean that there's going to be more people available to work. I think there's going to be more of a challenge, find people with skill that can actually do what's needed for the automation that's going to be needed in the future. Maybe we'll, we'll change tack a little now as we're coming into the, the final part of the interview and maybe just talk a little bit about yourself. Um, so outside of work, when you're not travelling and uh, developing products and so on, what kind of things do you, do you like to do yourself? Well, myself and my wife, we've, we have a family of three boys, range in age from 15 down to 10. And <laughs> Keeps you busy. With, they, you know, when I'm not working, they keep me busy. <laughs> but I often have this saying, like, even though I don't keep account of many hours of work in the week, but for me, is my work is my hobby. Yeah. Uh, but outside that, I do enjoy in getting involved in different local charities. So I will participate in 5K or 10K runs or 50K cycles when it's for a local charity. And so I do like to participate in local charities and 
internationally where I can support in that as well. So I just feel the reward you get for, for doing something for, for people that have a need for it is very satisfying. So Yeah, excellent. And then your plans for the future of the business in terms of new products, new markets, new sectors, or, or do you even see sometime maybe even a service offering coming into play in the future? Yeah, and, and I think if you look at Combilift's model over the last 21 years, we've, we've invested very heavily in research and development. So currently in Combilift, we invest 7% of our revenue goes into R&D. And thankfully over the years, Enterprise Ireland has been very supportive with, with help us fund some of that. But that investment in R&D is really key for our success, you know, that we're developing unique products. And we've been continually always looking at new verticals to focus on. Mm-hmm. And some of the verticals, you know, some of the new verticals we've, we've been focused on there is like the food industry. And one of the reasons we focus on the food sector, we all we believe that no matter what ups or downs happen in economic terms across the world, people are still eating and consuming food. Mm-hmm. And a good example, we developed a, a model of combi lift called the Combi RT. It's a rough terrain forklift that can drive in for handling for the chicken processing market so it can go into chicken farm sheds it's low profile it's unique for that vertical so as we continue to expand the business we're looking for new niches and we're willing to develop new products for a niche because i believe is the narrower the niche you focus on if you can develop the right product or service you can become the dominant player worldwide very quickly when you focus on a small niche and that has been our model mm-hmm. and it'll continue to be so but i would agree with you know with clients now looking at a total cost of ownership with the added advancement in technology and telematics we could definitely introduce a more model where there's a service orientation with our physical forklift trucks yeah, yeah definitely yeah. Uh, but it is a challenge to try and do that on a global basis where we're already exporting to 85 countries but it's definitely a model that we are interested in introducing into some markets that are more closer to home as such okay and then maybe just to to bring things to to a close where can uh, listeners find out more about uh, combi lift more about its products and its plans for the future um you know what depending on on where uh, individual is located or the market segment for combi lift we do invest very heavily in trade shows and a good example we participated in a trade show last week in, in, in Chicago. It's called Fabtech. It's a steel fabrication show. Mm-hmm. So people that's in that fabrication arena, they're coming to a fabrication show, not maybe to buy forklift trucks. We'll be one of the very few forklift manufacturers there, and they will trip over us. So in whatever sector a client's in, if they're in the wood business, if they're in the aluminum, we, we still are very reliant on, if you want to call that old-fashioned way of marketing, exhibiting at a trade show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that we're, we're not using social media, you know, we've website, etc. But it's really hard to beat that face-to-face contact. And particularly because we're selling physical products, if a potential client can actually visually see it, it makes their decision process much faster than just to see something online of what the product might look like. So we're still very pro-investing in trade shows, even though the number of attendees may be going down. But I personally feel the attendees that go to a trade show today, they're going there to do business. They're not tire kickers as such. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. even if the numbers are down, 
they're still very valuable business to be gained at trade shows. Excellent. Well, as always happens in in the show, we could you know we could go on chatting for the rest of the afternoon, but we're beaten by by the clock again. So thanks very much, uh, Martin, for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and fascinating to get your views on uh, on business and internationalisation, and I think it's a, an inspiration to other Irish business people who are looking to emulate your success. Thank you very much, Patrick. We'll hopefully see you soon. Yes, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Um, So thank you as well to our listeners. And if you'd like to learn more about globalization, supply chain management and international business, you can visit my website and blog at albalogistics.com or you can get my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books and Apple Books. Thank you and until next time.